listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I just started growing a handlebar mustache, and Joanne hates it. She looked at me the other night. She said, you have to be joking. And I said, listen, we're in a pandemic. I'm not going out anywhere. I'm growing some damn facial hair. So my guest today has great hair. But besides that, he's a uh, he's a legendary comedy writer. He's, he's, he's won multiple Emmys. He's also a songwriter, a playwright. He's worked with some of the top talent in the business, and I need to talk to him because he wrote on the Paul Lind Halloween special, and my guest is the one, the only, Bruce Valanche. How you doing, Bruce? Oh, guilty. Guilty of all those things. <clears throat> guilty of committing television. Exactly. You know, you've been in the business for so long, you know. When did you, when did you find your love for comedy? Was it as a kid? What were your influences? Well, yeah, as a kid, you know, I, I made faces in the mirror like a lot of kids who go to comedy. I was happy when I was in, in another character in a, in a fantasy world. Although my world was not terrible. It was just, you know, I was an unconventional kid. I was, a, you know, fat. I was uh, not athletic. So right away I was on the on the fringe of everything. So I developed a comic point of view. And I was heavily influenced by my, my mother, who was very funny, who came from a family of, of brilliant... In fact, her uncle was a Catskills comic. He was not a successful Catskills comic, but he was a Catskills comic. Uh, and so I grew up in a kind of an atmosphere of people making jokes. My father's family was very German and doer and scientific, and they were not funny. But my mother's family was a riot. And when I was a kid, I was drawn to uh, you know the fat guys, like Becky Gleason and uh, Zero Mostel and... Uh, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you name those were the ones uh, because they uh, they got to be funny and they got to be big stars. And I thought, well, that's that's good. As I got older, I collected more of them as influences. And then Sophie Tucker, who I saw as a kid, who was at, by the time I saw her was a fat girl. She was the last of the fat hot mamas. <laughs> so, you know, at what point? I mean. You were watching these. At what point did you sit there and think that you could write jokes, or did you want to act, or what was what was that goal? I wanted to act. I was a child actor. Uh, my parents enabled me. I was never a child star, or we'd be having this conversation in rehab. <laughs> but I did commercials, and I went out there. I did a lot of theater. I went to a summer camp that was uh, like fame in the Berkshires. It was run by Ted Mack, who was kind of like the Simon Cowell of his day. He ran. The Ted Mack Amateur Hour, which was uh, which was a big television show that turned Elvis down. That's his footnote. He turned Elvis down. But Ann Margaret was on the show. She lost to a woman who played Lady of Spain on the Leaf. You know? <laughs> it's so like funny when you, look, when you look back at some of these old shows. Like, oh, some man. of the stuff people did. Like, you know, as a kid, were... I would watch it, and you go, wait a second, there's a guy blowing into jugs. And there's five of them, and they're playing tunes. Well, there was this, they, there was the Swiss bell ringing act where they would have twenty bells lined up, and they would they would you know do a song with all the bells. And then there was variation on that was water glasses, <laughs> which you can which people still do as a science project. You know, where you fill them at a certain level, and you you rub your hand over them, and you get you get noises, and you kind of get a music, but approximate music. Anyway, so I was I was not one of those that go that far. But I acted, and then <laughs> it became clear to me that I was not going to have 
I wasn't going to get cat because I was too young for what I was. I looked older. I had a deep voice. I was big. And uh, I was up against genuine people who, who were the right age. So I started writing about it, kind of as therapy, for the, for the, uh, the high school paper, and became editor of that. And my parents said, oh, well, why don't you have uh, uh, writing journalism as a fallback? Because newspapers will never go out of style. <laughs> what did they know? What did any of us know? We were young. We were naive. And uh, so I always had, I had the writing, and I wound up pursuing the writing because uh, I was getting a better response at the writing than I was at the acting. And so I always went back and forth. I was always acting and performing and always writing. And eventually, they, they, many years later, it came to a head uh, when I was, I was on Hollywood Squares, and I was on TV six nights a week performing, more or less. And uh, I began getting on Broadway and on the road. And I was started doing my own, like, not a stand-up act, but like, a, I call it a sit-down act, because I tell stories and stuff like that. So they, they eventually coalesced. Now, when you were younger and writing, was comedy your definite go-to, and did you know when you wrote something if it was funny or not? Because some people do. Some people can write a joke, and they go, that's going to work. And, of course, I did stand-up for eight years, and I used to tour, and, and you'd see people, and you'd say, how the hell did you even deliver that? Because just the components aren't funny. When did you start getting the, the feel that you knew something was funny? Well, when I got a laugh. I mean, as a kid, if you got if you did something and they laughed, you know that's funny. <clears throat> as you get older and you begin constantly creating, stuff, you say to yourself, "If I think it's funny, maybe they'll think it's funny." Sometimes you're wrong, <laughs> and a lot of times it's uh, if you're writing for a specific thing, you're you're kind of you're you're reading the room in advance, and uh, uh, I think after enough times of that. You realize you can hit the ball. You realize, oh my God, I'm a player. <laughs> that, that, you know, I, I don't think there's, there's any that rule. But I said that's that's as hard and fast a rule as you can get. So, you know, a lot of people work in comedy and they never quite hit money. A lot of performance artists who are conceptual uh, don't hit money a lot of the time, and uh, um, that. You know, and now it doesn't, it, you know, I mean, you, someone like Andy Kaufman, who I knew, who was a friend, and I worked, never really worked with, but we did shows together, uh, never really hit funny. I mean, it was never, it was, it was brilliant, but it wasn't like people weren't, weren't rolling on the floor with laughter, yucky. I mean, it was, you were watching the whole concept of the thing. Some people don't like that at all, which is why he was, he was perfect. He became big on cheers where he had to be funny. He had to get laughs. And so people would go to see him thinking he's not, not cheers, taxi. People would go to, to see him thinking he was going to be Latka and Latka was going to be funny. And of course, he was doing some other characters. You know, sometimes he would just come out as one character and that would be the show. Well, it wasn't Latka. And so they, they were not crazy about that. But it didn't matter because he, he, once you've been on television, there's nothing bigger than, than being on television. And there's nothing sadder than somebody who was on television, like me, <laughs> who was no longer there and who was like, you know, kind of become in the markdown section of comedy beer. 
But I'm a gay icon, so I don't care. I get laid. Exactly. So you uh, you went you were in Chicago in your younger age. You know, you started breaking it in Chicago. Is that where you first started getting your your big breaks in Chicago? Well, when I I got a, out of college, I, I got a job at the Chicago Tribune, uh, and I was a feature writer, and I would interview all the stars who came to town on junkets promoting the movies and records and TV shows and stuff. And I was doing commercial and acting on the side. And there's a lot of work in Chicago. And uh, I met Ben Midler, who was starting out. He had an act. He was on Broadway and Fiddler on the Roof as one of the daughters. And she would go to the improv down the street the theater. And, and he signed with Bud Friedman, who owned the improv. And he began, uh, said he got her a date at a club in Chicago, a very famous club called Mr. Kelly, where a lot of very hip actors and performed and starred. And she, uh, she came there as, a, as the uh, opening act. For Jackie Vernon, who was a deadpan comic, uh, people don't remember him, but he was to- he was very funny because he was totally he, he never broke, and he would say things like, "When I was a kid, I was unwanted. Now I'm wanted in 13 states." That was that, that was the tone, of, and it got funnier. I mean, his act he had some really funny stuff. Anyway, uh, uh, Bud called and said, "Would you write about her if you like her?" And I wrote about her. I liked her. I thought she was terrific, and I wrote about her. And uh, she called me and said that was very funny. Uh, and I said, "You're funny. You should talk more on stage." And she said, "You got any lines?" And I began writing jokes for her, local material a lot. But she she kind of had an act. But then I began writing more and more of it, and then went on the road with her, and that lasted five years, during which time she broke. You know, she was discovered at the circus baths, and then she uh, uh, had a, got a record deal that broke her. And um, she had a uh, dresser who had a brother named Tim Hauser who had a group called the Manhattan Transfer, which was just starting. And so we put their act together, and uh, they got an, she got them an album deal, and uh, they got a television series. Uh, it was a short-lived TV series of a summer show, replacement show for Cher, that I was also writing for. And uh, so I came out here to L.A., darkest Hollywood where I am now, and uh, and stayed. I was writing a variety of television. There was a lot of that then. Cable killed it, but there was a lot of it then. I, I used to love variety shows. You know, as a kid, I watched them. And, and you know, what what as a writer, what is your... When you're a writer on a variety show back then in the golden age of variety, for me at least, did you write everything from an opening monologue to a sketch, or what was what were your uh, responsibilities as well, a writer? Uh, generally, yeah, everything. I mean, uh, there was a, always a team on those shows. Uh, uh, there was a head writer, and there were a writer, a team of writers, and some of those writers were teams themselves. There were team pair of, for example. On the Carol Burnett show, uh, almost everybody was a team because the husband discovered he could get two for the price of one. And so he's not the most producer, and he was producing the show. And uh, so he would only hire the team. But everything gets split up. There, there were people who will spend, it depends on who, on who, you know, the, the, the talent is. If, if, if Carol didn't do a monologue, you know, she was not a stand-up comic. Uh, but other, I mean, if you were writing, I wasn't too young, but the Jack Benny show, Jack Benny was a comic, and so he would always have a, a monologue that was talking, or any of the, the talk shows, Johnny Carson, etc., etc. So there were writers who just do that, and then there would be other writers who would just do 
sketches and things. And there were some who would just do musical stuff. I did. I wrote Donnie and Marie, and we had a brilliant guy named Earl Brown who just wrote the finales because they were they were an extended medley. And then we'd come in and put like jokes and things in, in finale. Each finale had a theme, you know, The Wizard of Oz or uh, Star Wars or something like that. So there was a, there was a division of labor. Now you mentioned and I, I, on shows. I did a lot of shows with Paul Lind was on, and I would write Paul's. I'm Donnie Don Maria. Tell me, tell me about the Paul Lind Halloween special because people don't well, know Kiss was on it, Florence well, Henderson was on it. It's it's a it's a spectacular show. It is, you know, it, it, it's amazing because it was one of many weird specials that were done in the day, and it came and went, and uh, it was rediscovered on the internet. And the fact that it's a Halloween show, and there are so few Halloween things. That you that don't involve slasher, you know, and monsters. That that and Hocus Pocus, which I also worked on, are two are two things that are perennials now. There is a new audience every five years for those shows, and uh, because they the kids grow into it. But that one, uh, Paul had a very rich uh, specials deal at ABC because he, he had a series that did not work, and they were paying him off in, <laughs> in specials and. Donnie and Marie and things like that. And, and I don't know who pitched the idea. It was not my idea. But to marry Paul with Halloween. And once anybody, anybody heard it, it was perfect. You know? right. And the, the promo was Paul in, in a, a witch's, you know, witch's outfit. And it was, it was just because, well, he was Uncle Arthur on Bewitched, but he was never a, a witch. He wasn't a warlock. You know, he was, he was in, in Mufti all through Bewitched. Uh, unless there may have been, I'm not a bewitched freak. So if there's anybody out there who remembers episode 312, where he did put on a witch's outfit, <laughs> forgive me. Uh, but so we immediately put, we had him in the family of famous witches. We had the Wicked Witch of the West and we had Witchy Poo. And they both agreed. Margaret Hamilton came out from New York to do it. And Billy, uh, Billy Hayes came from around the corner of the studio <laughs> where she was my neighbor uh, to do it. And um, and then it was like it was those network specials were were typically cast a very wide net. It was like you have to get people who will appeal to kids and and uh, adults who buy you know Tylenol and and uh, you know, different diverse ethnic groups. So there was everything was on it. So Florence Henderson uh, was an ABC star, and that was called cross promotion. Put her on, but Tim Conway was funny. You needed somebody else besides Paul who would bring the funny. So he was on. And then uh, Roz Kelly, who was Pinky Tuscadero on Happy Days, another ABC star, a cross-promotional thing. Kiss was obviously to appeal to the youngest demographic. And uh, it was it was really very strange because Paul had no idea who Kiss was. And uh, no idea. And I showed him the makeup and he, and he thought that was hilarious right away. And then he met Gene Simmons. And uh, he took one look at Gene Simmons' tongue and he said, I want to know him better. <laughs> and, and, of course, I told Gene this, and he says, it happens with everybody. That they see my tongue, they want to get next to me right away. And then he wound up doing, he repeated that story, I think, on his, he had a reality show for a while. Anyway, he's, he's an old friend from that period. And also, the, the other shocking thing about this on the Fallen Hollywood Week, Halloween special was they uh, 
they brought their fan club president. And they had, there was like a contest. You could watch. Fan club president arrived, and his father was Ringo Starr. And the fact that Ringo was old enough to have a kid who was old enough to be, which threw all of us into a panic because we suddenly felt very old. You know, Ringo has a kid. Ringo, who's a kid who's an adult. But uh, it was it was pretty funny. And Paul, of course, other than you know wanting Bean, uh, had no idea what Kiss's music was like. He was kind of like what, <laughs> what? But he, you know, and uh, uh, just there were some things on the show that were cut out. There was one sketch which I I worked on that was it was too hip for the show, uh, and it, it really harkens back. God, uh, Barbara Walters had been made the first network anchor of a network news show the first female anchor of a network news show and she co-anchored with a, a guy named harry reasoner who was uh, an old kind of alky kind of a journalist and, you know crabby kind of uh and they were they did not make for a happy marriage at all and as a and she uh i believe they gave her they created 2020 for her uh, as a result of that but they had a big contract with but we did a sketch about the two of them, ha- you know, having a fight on the air during the show. And Florence Henderson was played Barbara, and I think I don't—I think Paul was was Harry Reasoner, and uh, it was very funny. But it was way too hip for the room. It was asking the audience to. And ABC was very—they didn't want it at all because they didn't want anybody to make fun of the fact that they had this flaming turd on TV every night at 6.30 that they didn't know what to do about. So, so I, I wish I could find an outtake. The, there's a, the producer, one of the producers of the show is, is around, and uh, I keep saying, please go into your vault and see if maybe you had, you know, you just have a, a tape. Because, you know, once once it's an outtake, then the footage kind of disappears. You know, it's a, Literally cutting room floor. So, but we're trying. It's been fifty years, but we're trying. No, that was a. I mean, that, that was a great show. And then you also, I mean, you've written your your writing is just all over the place, which is awesome. You also wrote in a Star Wars holiday special. Tell me about that because it's just Paul Lynn and Star Wars holiday Halloween. It doesn't get better than that. Well, that was another crazy holiday special that networks were doing, and they may have been within a year of each other. Uh, but it was a different network. That one was CBS. And, uh, which is why we had B. Arthur and Art Carney and, uh, other people who were active on CBS at the time. Um, it was, uh, you know, I have to say, first, I have a, a couple of things I have to say whenever I talk about this, that show. First of all, uh, it was, uh, there were a lot of crazy variety specials with that. And, I, it was the 70s, and uh, and we were chemically altered. And, you know, I say that, and then, then I get, I saw uh, somebody's review of the Lego, Star Wars Lego husband said, of course, there's nothing like the first one that was written by Bruce Falanche, uh, uh, who was coked out of his mind, where they got that from, I don't know. But, so I, so I tried to solve that. I mean, we did, we weren't, I wasn't coked out of my mind. We did all, all the things people did in the 70s. I joked that Carrie Fisher and I snorted the sweet and low. <laughs> we were, but, you know, that's an exaggeration, obviously. But we were, it, it's no, uh, uh, 
it's not saying anything out of school to tell you that Carrie had it with doing some drugs. But um, uh, so I say that. Because, but what that means is, is that we were uh, oftentimes op- operating on a buzz, but at the same time, so was a lot of the audience. <laughs> so it, it was, there was a good marriage there. And the other thing I, I want to, uh, first of all, I, I say that a lot of people, uh, this gets people angry. A lot of people at the time thought Star Wars was, was a piece of crap. Star Wars was a movie. It was a summer blockbuster. It, it borrowed a lot from the Old Republic serials. Some people thought it was a parody of the Old Republic serials. It had not become the Scientology of the nerds, which it became later. I mean, he was he was just about to start shoot, shooting Empire Strikes Back when we did this thing. He was preoccupied with that, as a matter of fact. But uh, it became a religion after the first three movies were on video and another generation began watching them and began worshiping. And then every time, then the internet happened and it perpetuated that myth and it perpetuated the star. Suddenly our stroke came bubbling up out of the Paleozoic slime and people could say, George, you betrayed us. How did that happen? And every time there's a new Star Wars thing, it comes up. If I had known 45 years ago that we were going to be talking about this, I would have paid closer attention. So those are the things I have to say. Now, also, George, of, of the 10 st- original Star Wars stories he told me he had, this was the last one he sold to CBS. And I think he thought, because I don't think George thought in terms of network variety specials. I think George thought it would, it would be in some, like an original musical thing. If he thought that, why he decided to sell them an idea that headlined the Wookiees, who are a species that speak no known language in this or any other universe, and who, as I always said, sound like you know, fat people having orgasm. <laughs> Trust me, I know. I, I don't think he would have sold them that had he known that what, what a network variety special is like. So he was kind of appalled when it began falling together. And he backed away into the Empire Strikes Back and, and left his subalterns to deal with, with it. And they didn't really have much to say about it. And the network was busy trying to create a, a big kind of holiday thing. So it became this weird amalgam of cheap special effects and a lot of people in monkey suits running around uh, doing mime. And Wookiees can't even mime. They're big, clunky creatures. They're not. They're not mimes with little subtle, you know, fingers that they can do things. No, no. They are the kind of things that you know. You wide load, step out of the way. So there, it was. Uh, you know, it was kind of doomed. And we loaded it up with variety elements that uh, that some of it were, were good, some of it were ridiculous. And uh, and that and it came and it went exactly. And the internet suddenly it, it came bubbling up on the internet as a result. It's funny. It's funny when that stuff happens because I saw. I'll be honest. I saw the first three Star Wars. I didn't see the other ones. I haven't watched The Mandalorian. But it always amazes me how people. You think that someone was like hitting their kid, like how pissed they get when anyone says anything a little bit off about Star Wars. It's they become rabid, and it, it amazes me because I think it's a fucking TV show. I mean, a movie. It is like it's like Scientologists. You can't make fun of of their of their religion. First of all, they think it's a religion, and 
Yeah, it's, and with Star Wars, you're making fun of their religion, and they think this is a religion too. <laughs> now you're right. Now, you're... It, I mean, I, it's I enjoy Star Wars. It's fun. I've gone to see everything, and and. Uh, I even watched the Lego special, which was strange because they made Daisy Ridley look like Rosie O'Donnell. I don't know how they managed to do that. <laughs> so you were you were writing these uh, writing for variety specials. When did you start writing jokes? Because I'm sure that's what ended up getting you to the writing for the Oscars. But you wrote material for a lot of people. How did you break into that? Um, well. Uh... I guess on the performance level, it was with, it started with Bet. I was writing for Bet, and uh, a lot of people came through town in Chicago, and they I, I got some publicity for doing that, or they heard about it. And so I was writing stuff for uh, Lily Tomlin and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and uh, David Steinberg, not not the manager, but the uh, the the, the, the comedian. And other musical accents that came from from uh, Bet Barry Manilow was her music director, and Luther Vandross was her a backup singer. Melissa Manchester was a harlot. So I was writing for all those people. And, uh, and when I came out to Hollywood, it just expanded. I was writing a lot of what they call patter for people when they do their concert appearances. A lot of you know for Vegas and stuff like that. And it was a natural uh, transition to variety where people you know tell jokes. Uh, now I I was not never uh, I I would I would go into a club to see how certain things were working for people I was working with uh, when when Robin would be would do a spot on the Oscars we would go to the comedy store and he would try stuff out just to see how it felt Billy would never do that Billy Chris would never do that because he didn't want to give any of it away before it was on the Oscars because he wanted to be fresh but um, and Whoopi. Uh, she didn't do that, but I was I was writing like she always had characters, but she also did. She when in her live act, even right now, even when she, when, she, when there is a live act, she does a stuff up front about uh, current events and being on the View and all that. So I uh, I guess I sort of eased into it. I mean, I write a lot. I write a lot of much more uh, for uh, for people who are uh, presenting something. Than I do for fictional characters, although I do that too. But you know, screenwriters and playwrights create the characters and write them, and I'm presented with a, a persona that I have to write to, which you know makes it easier in many cases. Now, how I, did I you, admire people who invent, invent the characters out of mold. How did you break into the Oscars? How did you get that first job? And you wrote for them for so long. How did that happen? Uh, it was, well, I'd written for a bunch of people off and on who were on the show. And then in 1989, Alan Carr uh, was, was given the show to produce, and he brought me on to write it. And that was the infamous Snow White, uh, Rob Lowe show, and uh, I, which I didn't do. The whole He imported the whole front, that opening number from San Francisco, from Beach Blanket Babylon, which was a big review up there, and uh, added Hollywood touches. But, uh, and of course the show, it was kind of cataclysmic, but the next year they brought in a different producer who went on to do 17 more of them. And, uh, Billy Crystal came in as the host. And so I, for Billy, so I, I survived and I wound up doing 23 shows as a writer or a head writer. And then a lot of other uh, shows under the, as an under the table writer for people who were, uh, who were not thrilled with their material, mainly because, uh, the show became hosted mostly by a talk show 
hosts who are comedians, but who have uh, 10 or 12 people on the writing staff, and, and they would bring them over to the gospel. And they would write for them, but the rest of the show had to be written, and there was no money left for the writing book. So there would be a writer, but they wound up, people who were on the show would wind up going to their friends and collaborators and they fixed it, fluff this up. What were your responsibilities when you wrote on the Oscars? What 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 is it they like? When do you start? A week before? I mean, how is how is the whole process? Yes, a week before, just like when do you start training for the Super Bowl? A week before. Yeah, that's right. I guess Tom Brady about a week before last yesterday he was out in the fall of that. We start. The show is usually February or March, and we start in October. Uh, or whenever they nail down a host. And this year, of course, it was unprecedented, uh, as with everything. But uh, it used to be we'd start in October and, and uh, throw around some ideas. And once there was a host on board, we would, we would throw around more ideas with uh, what the hosts do. And then they used to have the, uh, the, the honorary awards we presented on the show. And they... So we could write those because those would be decided upon. And however, they eliminated that. They made that a separate event called the Governor's Ball, the Governor's Award, me, uh, which they they tape uh, and then insert onto the Oscar show. So instead of being an, an extra hour on the show, it's an extra three minutes. So uh, basically, everything is in place. Uh, for the nominations. And once the nominations are announced, it's six weeks or maybe a month, depending on the scheduling, between the nominations and the show. And that's when everything really gets written. Because you know what you're writing about. You know what the movies are. You know who will show up. You know who will exercise the ritual taking of umbrage uh, and all of that. And so it, it gets intense until the actual the show. And then during the show... I'm always in the wings, in a little a little cubicle that's set up for the host, with uh, many te- with television sets and food and and food, and um, and we watch the show as everybody else does. And as things opportunities come along, we rewrite. As we call it. But you know, it has to be the right moment. It has to follow something. That you don't want to have to fall back to something that happened half an hour ago. So and so for for me. When I'm doing it, the writing never doesn't stop until it's over. Now, what, what's, what were your responsibilities when you were, became head writer? Were you just overseeing everything, or what? What were your job then? Because, well, you're in charge. You're in charge. The show tends to uh, uh, bifurcate. <laughs> That's a good word. Uh, into the host and the rest of the show, and so the, the head writer is is the liaison between the host and everybody else, all the other team of writers the host brings in and whoever is writing the rest of the team of writers if there's enough money uh, who are doing the rest of the show and uh, it's basically uh, the point person with the producer or producers uh, and if necessary this the academy and the the ever present network censor yeah. <laughs> who is less present than, than, than they, she used to be it's not yeah. she anymore but uh, um, it was she for many many years he used to be omnipresent, but now, you know, uh, network television standards have relaxed a lot. You can't compete with cable and the internet unless they, they, they give the writers some slack. Have you had any jokes that on the Oscars 
that you knew were golden, but then the censors like you can't say that. And what oh, would you yeah. would you rewrite them then, or I mean, give me an example. Oh, we would generally have to just, just uh, uh, there was uh, the one year. If you remember, Hugh Grant got caught with a hooker, and um, uh, her name was Divine Brown. But everybody knew that at the time. And Whoopi was hosting the show, and she was going to say, "Of course, the biggest release this year was Hugh Grant's." which we knew would be a huge laugh. And uh, she said, yeah, that's Divine Brown. That's a real fellatio Alger story. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Sputterman, the network censor, said, uh, oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, fellatio is on the list. And she had a list of words that could not be said. Fellatio was one of them. And so we looked at each other and we said, we're not going to fight over this, you know. I mean, you're not going to fight over a blowjob joke. And then uh, the saddest was uh, Steve Martin, the first year who um, we had a fabulous joke. He was going to come on after the commer- after the monologue, come back after the commercial. And say, I have good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is my fly was open throughout the monologue. The good news is the camera puts on 10 pounds. And it's a great joke. And Steve said, oh, I can't do that. It's a cop joke. And uh, I said, no, it's a camera joke. And I argued, and I brought in a nun, and I told her, don't she laugh? And, and Mrs. Futterman thought it was hysterical, and she said, fine, nothing wrong with it. It's a great joke. And at the last moment, just before he was going on, he turned to me, and he said, I, I can't tell how to joke. And, of course, I couldn't argue with him. And I said to the stage manager, we're cutting the cock joke. And the stage manager said to the PA, the cock joke has been cut. <laughs> the audience heard. You see Judy Dench going, cock joke? What was cock joke? <laughs> now, you've been, you, you know, as you said, you've written a lot and you've acted. What was it like with Hollywood Squares? Because all of a sudden, you're, I mean, if people, if you don't know what Bruce looks like, he always wears cool glasses he's got great hair you're you're not like someone if you're out in a restaurant in la someone's like that guy's somebody but people wouldn't know who you were what was it like once hollywood squares came on because people would see you every day how did that change your life well first of all amy schumer wrote about me in her book said one of the you don't know who bruce valanche is what do you i look like bruce valanche the morning after i look like bruce valanche have you ever what that look uh, a picture of barn owl with red glasses. So I've always, I've always shouted out to Amy for that. But a lot, you know, when you're on television, a lot, I, a lot changes immediately because you are, you are recognized, you are known. Now, I never had the kind of success where I couldn't leave the house. You know, nobody, there were no mob scenes trying to cut a clip of my, I wasn't Justin Bieber. You know, it's not like that. That is a, a different level of fame. But I had I had the kind of level of fame which I still have, where I'll go someplace and somebody will want a selfie with me, uh, or before selfies there was autographs. And um, uh, when you, I'd be giving autographs to people, and other people you walking by going, "Who's that?" Because that's the kind of fame, you know. I mean, I had that kind of fame. People knew me, and other people had no idea who I was. Now with selfies, it doesn't happen because everybody has selfies with everybody. So nobody knows 
who anybody is. They just say, oh, there's some schmucks doing a selfie. But, <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, it's, it's when you have the real kind of huge stardom thing that hits you like a bulldozer, uh, I, I, no one's aware of, prepared for it, especially when they're young. I mean, when you know, when you're Miley Cyrus, you're somebody very, very young, and you get that rush of of, uh, of uh, where everything you do is marketable, especially now on social media. Uh, it's terrifying. I mean, even thirty years ago, when that when Roseanne came out of nowhere and suddenly the biggest star on television, and they were digging up stories about oh, she gave away her baby and. All the stuff that was her private life suddenly became everybody's uh, interest. And, and I don't think you have to be a, per, a, a pretty strong person to be prepared for that kind of honor. So it really it does materially change your life. Yeah. Fortunately, that's not the case for me. I mean, I became a name, which I, I had been a any name because I had been on television and whatnot. But I became, you know, I was on your face uh, five days a week. So. But I wasn't wasn't like uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that level of gigantitude that happened. Now, when when did you start wearing the different color glasses? When when did the Bruce Valanche look start? I mean, as a little well, Bruce, I, I mean, as a little <laughs> kid on the playground, you had the hair and the glasses and the and the shirts. How, when did it start? I didn't have glasses yet. My father was an optometrist, so I always loved. I always wore glasses. The minute I had to wear glasses, I wore glasses. I always wore ridiculous frames for myself. Never understood who was who are these frames for? So I was I was afraid to tell him I was ordering all these frames, but they knew who they were for. But um, uh, so I always did that. But you know, I mean, I couldn't as I was on my own. I couldn't afford to. When I got on on squares, I, I did a thing about change, having lots of glasses, changing glasses. Uh, but that's because I was getting a lot of money for it, it was being subsidized and. Uh, uh, when my prescription changed, I realized I had to take a second mortgage on the house, <laughs> change all those uh, prescriptions. So I got, I settled on red. That was, and, and it's a good thing too, because squares was just going off the air. So, uh, so I settled on the red glasses, and that was that. The t-shirts happened because uh, my mother was very OCD, and she always dressed me up. And it's very difficult to dress up a fat kid because none of those things are comfortable. Ties are not comfortable around your neck. Nothing is done in your size, particularly you're a husky or somewhere, neither man nor boy. And so I was so happy to take all of that crap off just for a t-shirt. And when I moved to California and realized I could go anywhere in a t-shirt, I said, well, I'll never leave it. I used to have a layer. I used to wear a shirt open. So it's like an artist's smock effect with a t-shirt underneath. That was in Chicago, of course. It was also it was chillier there. But uh, when I moved out here, I could get rid of that. Just and it was also it was the seventies. It was it was ironic t-shirt era. So everybody was wearing them. You know, there were either the, the, the rock bands or funny phrases or stuff. But I just never grown out of it. And as long as I can keep up this look and not look like some strange old guy doing it, I I will I will continue. But it's my own hair. It's my original, my natural color, which of course has been enhanced a lot. <laughs> now you mentioned earlier about hairspray. Tell me about that. Tell me about when you you got to act on stage. I mean, how did that come about, and was it really very satisfying for you? Yeah. Oh, it was the most. I'll do it again in a minute. 
Uh, I've always acted on stage. One thing I've, I've always done and continued doing. Um, and uh, when I was on squares, uh, I got a lot of offers for various things. They wanted to do a national tour, and they wanted to have a name if they could, because uh, the girl is always unknown. But they wanted to have a, a name that would help box office. Sometimes. I was on television every night, so I went and auditioned. I had to go. They, I auditioned a couple of times, and uh, and they offered it to me. And I went out and I toured it for a year, and then after a year, I went to Broadway after Harvey left and Harvey Firestein, and um, and stayed with it for a year. And uh, um, I would have gone back, but they changed their, they were looking, they were rolling back to make more money, rolling back salary. I was not in the mood for that. So I left. I figured, okay, I've done two years, but it's, I had the best time doing it. It's a fabulous show. I mean, uh, and unlike a, a lot of things, if you do eight times a week, it can become drudgery. But with that show, the minute you hit the stage, you know, the audience is there to have a party, have a good time, and it kind of. It raises you up, even if you're like feeling lousy, and uh, you do you do your show. And so I, I said at the time, I now I understand Vanessa. Redford. If if I had to do Medea every night and kill my children and drag the corpses around, I might not be as lighthearted. <laughs> I might have a, heavy, a heavier meander. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know. It's so funny how the the way the audience plays a part. Like me when I lived in L.A. Me and my wife went to see Priscilla, Queen of the Dr- uh, Jungle, in at Pantages, and <laughs> Queen of the Desert. It, Queen You're of the Desert, yeah. and it was it was so Queen fun. It was you so got your queens mixed up. Yeah, I got my queens. It was so fun though because the crowd was there. It wasn't the pretentious like, oh, we're here for theater, and it, it just adds to the show. And 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 when that happens, as an actor, do you feel that energy pumping off the crowd when oh, you're absolutely. on? Absolutely, absolutely, and and. You know the show so well. You know the moments that, that will tell you that. Certain lines, they will, certain bits of business. Uh, and sometimes house lights go down and the audience begins. They came apart. Uh, now it's on us. If, if we're, we'll screw it up. They, they are here to have a good time. Sometimes, you know, the, the, uh, Wednesday matinee, the lights would go down and they would be like, hmm. no... They're not. They're not here. That those those people. These people. They, they're here to see whatever, and they're going to be much more judgmental. And that can they can either say, "Oh, so I'm going to have to really work hard," <laughs> or you can view it as a challenge. You've won a bunch of Emmys. What do you? Where? Explain the feeling when you've won your first Emmy, and what do you do with your Emmys? Where are they now? Well, I. I, I had six of them, and, and uh, two of them I have in the house. They're they're like bookends on either end of the cap of a of a shelf. They have pride of place, and then the others I gave various people. My mother had one, my grandmother had one, my agent, my manager, and then my mother and my grandmother both passed. So those I gave to a business manager, I gave the other one to publicists uh, who I work with, and they have them, and they like to have them in their office. My business manager we had says to people, you do something I tell them, he's an accountant. <laughs> no, my client. Oh, he's, so it's like, I said, you know, I'll start commissioning this in a minute. <laughs> if you don't keep it polished. 
but the first time you win, it's uh, well, I lost a couple of times before I won, so I had the experience of. of uh, it, I always tell the host that at any award show I've ever done uh, is that there are there are five nominees in the category, and only one of them can win, and so four of them are sitting there. And as the evening wears on, the audience fills up with losers. And they're, they're not in the best mood. They may not want to hear your jokes. They may be sitting here thinking, who can they fire when they leave here? <laughs> now they can fire them on a text while you're while you're doing your stuff. They can sit there and fire So it may be that they get to expunge that field while they're actually in the audience. But so, the, so I've been in uh, been in the, in the losing uh, section, and then I think it was my third nomination when I won, and there it, there had been. Uh, a hiatus of a few years um, uh, before I, it was like from I won a few I won a few in the seventies and I won a few again in the nineties and um, but so I went I remember going to the, the first one thinking well this is going to happen I mean first one where I won it's not going to happen because I but I never win <laughs> and I won so it was kind of like oh well. All right, and it happened to be. Uh, um, I, I didn't get to speak. I only got to speak once. It was a team thing, and one person speak. And I, one year, the first year we were, we were not for Billy Crystal Hospital was the Jack Allen show where we kept rewriting, and um, and uh, we didn't think Billy was in vacation on vacation with his kids in Hawaii and. He was also nominated for a host, but he knew he was going to lose to like Michael Jackson was in this category. We figured he's not, and he didn't win. But we did win for right, um, uh, and so all the writers got to get up there, and we all got to say something because people who do the Emmy show are all friends and colleagues of ours. And they weren't going to cut us off, <laughs> so we each got to say something. So I got to say something, and. Uh, uh, and after then, the subsequent ones again, I, I was never the spoken. And Billy won the following year for hosting. You mentioned you mentioned the Jack Palance. What is that like when you're a writer and you're sitting in the wings and you see comedy gold? When you see Jack Palance doing a push up, and then you know what? I mean, what goes through your mind? Did you just sit there going, "This is callback heaven"? I don't know. Uh, What's it like when you're having sex with the homecoming queen? <laughs> like, oh my God, I scored. I can't believe I'm doing this. I absolutely can't believe I'm doing this. Uh, and uh, uh, that's what it's like. It's like, you know, a huge, or, a huge orgasmic high. It's like, oh my God, this is, what an opportunity. And, and that's when everybody gets excited and starts throwing ideas around and jokes around. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, it, it functions well for the show too because if it's a if it's a live show, which most of those are, they're live live. They're seen at the same time everywhere. You get to uh, the host gets to be the host of the, a party that's actually happening. The audience at home really feels like they're at something because they they know that this is not a pre-tape, not being this is something unplanned has occurred. So it's great. It's a uh, it's everybody. I mean, we all kind of laugh and. And if it works, it's like, oh, my God, we, we seized that opportunity and it worked. So it's very fulfilling now, in a gratifying now, way. Yeah. Now, earlier you said you're a gay icon. 
Now, when did this iconic stature come in place, and how have you seen the gay scene in L.A. change? Because I'm sure in the very beginning, like, you know, Paul Lind, if, you know, when you look back, you knew Paul was gay, but people in the Midwest didn't want to think, oh, my God, there's a gay man on TV. How has it changed for you as a writer who has been a gay man and is now an icon? How's it, how's the, how's the progression been for you? Well, it's two different things. Being a gay icon is something that's only really known by gay people. I mean, gay uh, people have to be told that so-and-so is a gay icon. Uh, they don't know. Unless it's Judy Garland, then they have a, they have a hint. <laughs> but uh, uh, that that just happened. I think that's like longevity, and because I've been out forever, and uh, um, and because it's easier. I mean, because I, I, I'm kind of ubiquitous in the gay world. So, uh, and I, now I'm an I'm an elder states person. So, uh, but it, it only uh, it. it, it you know, it's like Confederate money. You can't spend it north of Virginia. Right. <laughs> um, as for the other thing, as I mean, being out in Hollywood, obviously when I came, there was a whole different thing, but it, it never occurred to be anything but out. Uh, it wasn't uh, It wasn't something you declared like back then. You know, it, it was uh, after, it, it, only after Stonewall there was a movement. I felt I had never really I've been in, so I didn't have to. And I never felt like I uh, I was missing out on anything because if, if I didn't get a job because somebody uh, didn't like that I was gay, it was, that was not a job I would have wanted to have. That was not somebody I would have wanted, wanted to work with. So it was uh, it, it didn't it didn't change. Of course, now look, everything is different because as I've uh, uh, it was it was forty years from Stonewall to uh, Obergefell to same sex marriage, marriage equality at the Supreme Court, and once that happens, it kind of made gay people first class citizens, and uh, so that there was a, there was a certain mission accomplished. That, you know, the right wing. The only the only thing left is religious bigotry. Religious bigotry is, is something that doesn't go away. It hasn't gone away in two thousand years, so uh, it ain't going away. You know. All, all that fast, and uh, that's the only the only hurdle we still have. There is there are still religious bigots. And they make noise and they want to take rights away. So, um, and it, it's easier in Hollywood now to uh, to just be who you are, to be your authentic self. What hasn't happened yet is a, an out gay actor being a big action hero star. Which would be, you know, when football and basketball and baseball and uh, all of those things have big out stars who are who are not just famous for being out, but who are genuine stars, then that begins to change the culture, culture generally. And that's a the longer haul, you know. Now, for you, living in L.A., being a man about town, how have you been dealing with coronavirus? I mean, are are you? Is it? It's how are you dealing with the pandemic? Are are you someone who stays in all the time, or have you tried to yes, venture out? Of I mean, course, I, I because I I'm, I'm of a certain age, so I don't. I'm mean, getting a vaccine Wednesday. I'm getting a shot Wednesday, so that things will begin to change after that. But up until now, I've worn pants five times since March 12th, once with a belt, 
And, uh, you know, I'm a writer. I'm very lucky. I can work. I can sit here going to commando. And unless I've, I stand up to answer the door for the Amazon guy and pull a Jeffrey Tubin, I'm okay. <laughs> but I'm very lucky. I mean, people who have to be out on the front line and people who have to go out into the world uh, as part of the daily business, and I don't have to do that. I'm, uh, I miss performing. Uh, live because that just doesn't exist anywhere. I mean, I'm in LA, in LA County. I mean, today California is opening up uh, re- out- outdoor dining again and, and lifting the stay-at-home order. But it's county by county, and I doubt that LA County will will lift the order today because the numbers here are still very high. So, and uh, you know, we've all developed very rich lives on Zoom. Who knew what Zoom was a year ago? Now, Zoom, Zoom is, the, is the biggest app in the world now. I always wonder, you know, it was funny. People had Skype, and then Skype just disappeared, and now everybody has Zoom. And I'm thinking, what happened to Skype? Skype, I always, thought, I always got lousy imagery on Skype. I never had a good, good image on Skype. I think people were happy to get rid of Skype. I have Skype, and sometimes they say, oh, well, Skype, they'll say, if you must, but it'll look better on Zoom. Trust me. It just will. And... Um, there you go. But it's, you know, where's MySpace? Where's Friendster? It's, it's so funny how things change. You know, you sit there and it's just, I mean... The only people who remember those things are people who were teenage girls when they were around. <laughs> Before we go, I got to ask you, what are you working on right now? And what is the future? What would you like to see the future of Bruce Valange be? I'm back after He's living in Australia. And he's got a woman, so I don't think I'm going to get much fertility there. <laughs> Other than that, I can't plug anything. I mean, I, I, I wrote a musical. I've been writing stuff, you know, during this thing, but I got nothing to plug. I'm, I'm doing a million benefits, but, you know, that benefits are us. Um, so I wish I could tell you. I am working on a book, which is about all these, how I committed the worst television shows in the history and lived to tell the tale. And some of which you've heard today, but... Um, that won't be out for a while. I'm hoping. I'm hoping we'll be done. We can rush it out next Christmas, but who knows? Who knows? Well, I want to thank you, Bruce. You know, it's so funny. Uh, Steve Joyner. I'm friends with him on Facebook, and he followed my Cooper Talk radio page, and he sent me a message, and he said, you know, I, I know a lot of people, and we were talking on the phone, and he mentioned your name, and I said, I, I gotta have Bruce Blanche because you know it's he, I is your comedy writing legend, so. <laughs> No, have a have a. <laughs> are, are you are you are you on Twitter? Are you, do you tweet a lot? I twat not. Uh, I am on uh, Facebook. Uh, I mean, I have a Twitter account, but I never use it. I'm on Facebook, and I'm you know that's that, that's good enough for the moment. And you can you can always. I, I, there's also there's a fan site called WeGotRoots.com, with uh, uh, with a guy in Nash, and he, now he's wow. Panama City, Florida, who uh, who like knows more about what I'm doing than I do, and like he'll plug this thing, and he'll like you know I send him all the stuff, and he's like he's all he's, he's all over me. So if you need to get a hold of me, go to WeGotBruce.com. Well, I want to thank you, Bruce. People, go check out Bruce. Just you know, go find his work, watch him. Go if you can find the old Hollywood Squares, check it out. He's very funny. So follow him. Go to getbruce.com. We got bruce.com. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 830 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter is at coopertalk. Instagram, 
Cooper Talk 1. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.